Do I have to follow that? God. That's beautiful. Had a flashback to the movie. That, that scene is electric. Thank you, thank you. All right. Um, what a week, okay? As you know, we are this year, actually this process started over two years ago. Uh, traditionally in Kerygma, we primarily take biblical books, biblical texts, um, do historical background, some context. The overarching goal is to understand the biblical material in light of the time it was written and what it originally meant, and then we can bring it forward. Um, several people have asked for several years, could we ever at some point get around to talking about not just text, but fundamental beliefs. What do we as Christians, as United Methodists, believe in? So we've spent, since last uh, September, walking through core basic Christian beliefs, where they come from, what they are. Uh, we've taken some uh, breaks for both Christmas and for Lent. Uh, we moved into Methodism and sort of where we come from, who we are, what kinds of things we believe, what makes us distinct uh, from other bodies. And of course, a big piece of that then is uh, uh, both in Christianity and in Methodism, is that beliefs are not just intellectual. They also deal with uh, praxis, uh, living your life in the world, and uh, which embroils us in issues. Which means that this topic was slated for this week two years ago. And of all weeks to land. Who would have known the vice president last Sunday afternoon would open Pandora's box? Who would have guessed the President of the United States would be the first president in history to openly go on record as making the statement that he made? And of course, you may know Mitt Romney last night, or yesterday at, at a college, made the statement. He, of course, he was in sort of foreign territory where he was anyway, uh, because he was at a place that believes that Mormonism is a cult. But he went on record saying that he defines marriage as between a man and a woman. So. Today we're dealing with the issue, the, the social principle issues on sexuality, which throws us right in the middle of a national debate, uh, social debate, as well as a religious debate. So one respect, it couldn't have come at a better week. Um, this is part of what is called the culture wars. You know it's a lively debate, and we do not have consensus on this as a nation, as a people, as a culture, uh, things flying around. So. We're going to back up just for a second. I'm going to assume you were not here last week. I'm going to give you the one or two minute version, okay? Because context is everything. There is a larger context. It is, it is easy to take something like the method of social principles, flip, 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 and find a statement, and then to read it out of context, okay? And I would be willing to bet that, that the basic statements that are there on controversial issues will surprise no one in this room. We know what those issues are already. But there is a larger context. Last week we did that. We kind of looked at it as a whole. Uh, we began by placing them in uh, context, both our faith as Christians, our faith as Methodists. As Christians, and this goes back to Judaism, Judaism was renowned in the ancient world, and this bothered the Romans. They couldn't figure it out, in that Judaism connected their relationship with God to their relationship with other people. And so you have the Ten Commandments, one tablet with God, one tablet with people. You've got Jesus affirming that. There are, what's the great commandment? Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbors yourself. So this whole linkage of our faith, our relationship to social praxis, to, to the issues of the day out there, that goes way, way back to the very beginning. Methodism, 
born in the heart of the Industrial Revolution in England in a very, very difficult time uh, from day one. I was doing some more reading on this week. Uh, the group that Wesley first joined, that his brother actually started before him, was already visiting people in debtor's prisons, was already going out and doing stuff with the poor before John Wesley even joined it. So that the Methodists became a part of that. Last week, we looked at two of the, the preliminary statements of the social principles. There's the, the preface and there's the preamble. They both make critically important statements that frame what we're going to look at today and for the next two weeks. So I just want to uh, remind us, because the purpose of those statements is to help us understand and have a context for the statements that are made. Preface. It says flat out that the statements and the so social principles are not church law. Belief in God, church law. Belief in Jesus, church law. The statements and the social principles, not church law. They are not binding. You do not have to agree with them. Many, many United Methodists would disagree with any statement, well, most of the statements that are in there. That's not their purpose. Uh, their purpose is different. Their purpose is stated in the preface in this way. They are a call to faithfulness. So the issue is not do I agree or disagree with this statement. The issue is meant to stimulate you which it does, and it does, does it well. Uh, they're intended to be instructive and persuasive in the best of the prophetic spirit, and then here it comes. The social principles are a call to all members of the United Methodist Church, prayerful, studied dialogue of faith and practice. So these statements are not saying to you, you should agree with them. They're saying, think about it. Struggle with it. These are profound issues. The preamble then reminds us with this words, we pledge to continue to be in respectful conversation, that broke down a general conference a couple weeks ago a little bit, uh, with those with whom we may differ. And let's be honest, uh, when you really, really differ about stuff you care about a lot, respectful conversation is hard, okay? It's hard to listen to the other when the other does not have the position that you hold dear. To explore our source, the sources of our differences to honor the sacred worth of all persons. The person who disagrees with you is not your enemy. They just disagree with you. Uh, as we continue to seek the mind of Christ and to do the will of God and everything. That, that's an ongoing kind of thing. We don't, you know, there may be some of us who think we know the mind of Christ. You know, but I think that the observation here is that that's an ongoing process. You know, I understand the mind of Christ as best I can at this point, but I need to be open to the fact that may develop. So, in the issue of sexuality, it's not just the issue of homosexuality. There, there's a cluster of issues. We'll deal with homosexuality at the end. But even at the beginning issues, the, the language is important in frames. It begins with a global statement about sexuality, human sexuality in toto. We affirm that sexuality is God's good gift to all persons. That's a very comprehensive, sweeping statement. All persons have been given the gift by God of their sexuality. We call everyone to responsible stewardship of this sacred gift, which implies that it can be used irresponsibly. Anybody who survived college knows that. Uh, <laughs> although all persons are sexual beings, whether or not they're married, and here it comes, sexual relations are affirmed in several key things. Only 
with the covenant of monogamous heterosexual marriage. All three of those words are in there. So even before we get to the, 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 the key statement we're going to look at later, this general statement, the general conference says, covenant relationship, monogamous, heterosexual, and marriage. And I would say the last word marriage is probably as controversial as the one before it, which essentially says outside the covenant of marriage, we don't affirm sexual relations, which would come as a surprise to a lot of people. All persons, regardless of age, gender, marital status, or sexual orientation, are entitled to have their human and civil rights insured and to be protected against violence. It's a basic, fundamental human right, no matter what we may think about the particular issue. The church should support the family in providing age-appropriate education regarding sexuality to children, youth, and adults, and I know we do that church, and then right behind this comes a bombshell. Um, marriage, we affirm the sanctity of the covenant marriage that is expressed in love, mutual respect, personal commitment between, by the way, this was added fairly recently, a man and a woman. You notice in the, in the, uh, the cultural discussion, this language and a man and a woman has been added. And at some point after 1972, it was added to this, this statement as well. We believe that God's blessings rest upon such marriage, whether or not there are children of that union, uh, which would make us distinctly different from some religious groups which see that marriage is primarily for procreation. We do not necessarily believe that. That's included, but it's not all. We reject social norms that assume different standards for women than for men in marriage. Uh, within our church, that's not real controversy right now, but there have been times 1970s, Barbara's a student over at Perkins. There's 500 students. There are five women. She's sent to the first church as an associate pastor only to find out that the church did not want her, that the senior pastor pulled a quickie and slipped her in. You know, uh, She was appointed later to another church as the senior pastor. They did not want her. And, and scripture got quoted to her about, you know, uh, Apostle Paul, I did not give permission for a woman to teach a man and all, all that kind of stuff we know. Here we have clear, since 1954, the Methodist Church has stood differently. We support laws and civil society that define marriage as the union of one man and one woman. There it is again. Okay. That was added recently. Springs off the issue of divorce. God's plan for a lifelong faithful marriage. The church must be on the forefront of premarital, marital, postmarital counseling in order to create and preserve strong marriages. So the core value is we value marriage and we would do everything in our power before, during, and after to help it to survive. In the, in the culture, what's the divorce rate? I've heard 50. I haven't heard 70. Is that certain some groups in some areas? Sure, yeah. Uh, I've heard for decades around 50%, uh, which if you value marriage is a very frightening statistic. Uh, however, when the married couple is in, uh, estranged beyond reconciliation, even after thoughtful consideration and counsel, divorce is a regrettable alternative in the midst of brokenness. We grieve over the devastating emotional, spiritual, economic consequences of divorce for all involved, understanding that women, and especially children, are disproportionately impacted in our culture by such burdens. As a church, we are concerned about high divorce rates. 
It is recommended that methods of mediation be used. And if anybody knows anything about the legal trade, you understand why mediation might be preferable to ripping the guts out of each other legally. Uh, to minimize the adver adversarial nature and fault finding that are often part of the current judicial process. Although divorce publicly declares that a marriage no longer exists, other covenantal relationships resulting from the marriage remain, such as the nurture and support of children, extended family ties. You marry into a family, they are your family, even if, if a divorce happens. We urge respectful negotiations and deciding the custody of minor children, support the consideration of either or both parents for this responsibility, and that custody not be reduced to financial support, control, or manipulation and retaliation, all of which we know happens. The welfare of each child must be the most important consideration. Um, they are the victims. Divorce does not preclude a new marriage, and that is controversial in some areas. We encourage an intentional commitment of the church and society to minister compassionately to those in the process of divorce, as well as members of divorced and remarried families in a community of faith where God's grace is shared by all. It's a rather long issue because it's a big issue in our society. Springing from marriage and divorce, you have the issue of children. And this has got a little bit of a bombshell in it. Christian parents and guardians and the church have the responsibility to ensure that children receive sex education. It's actually kind of mandated. Any of y'all had children here? Uh, was it fifth grade? That's uh, a dicey time, isn't it? Yeah. You, get, you get, to get to be a small group leader for the Human Sexuality Workshop. End of the Valley Death, Road to 300. Okay. Uh, look what happens here. Consistent with Christian morality. Now, what might Christian morality would be? Well, here it comes. Faithfulness in marriage, abstinence, and singleness. There's that thing that was there before that would surprise a lot of people. The, the Methodist Church is on record is essentially saying outside the marriage covenant, we do not support sexual activity. Now, it's interesting that in 1972, when it was first written, the language was slightly different. It says we do not clearly support, which gave you wiggle room. Somewhere along the line, they cut out the word clearly and kind of toughened that up a little bit. Abortion flows right into this, this, this same issue. By the way, does anybody know the Methodist Church's position on abortion? It surprises a lot of people. The beginning of life and the ending of life are the God-given boundaries of human existence. While individuals have always had some degree of control over when they would die, they now have the awesome power to determine when and even whether newborn individuals will be born. I think um, actually that, that capacity has been there for thousands of years, but, but it's been highly refined. We can, we can choose now. Our belief in the sanctity of unborn life makes it reluctant to approve abortion. Now, what does that just open the door for? Yeah, yeah. In the language of the day, what you're going to hear is a pro-choice view, even though they don't, will not use the language of pro-choice and for obvious reasons uh, as, as it becomes unpacked. We are equally bound to respect the sacredness of the life and well-being of the mother and the unborn child. <coughs> now, in some traditions, for example, any of y'all raised in the Roman Catholic Church? Okay. 
If they choose between the life of the mother and the life of the child, by Catholic law, who wins? The child. It's a matter of church law. And the Methodist Church was saying, no, it's not that easy. Th those have to be weighed. We re recognize tragic conflicts of life with life that may justify abortion. That door is open. And in such cases, we support the legal option of abortion under proper medical procedures. And then we're going to have a lot of language that seems to almost to backtrack, saying that's not really the position we want to take. We take it with great reluctance. We support parental, guardian, and other responsible adult notification and consent before abortions can be performed on girls who have not yet reached the age of legal adulthood. Y'all remember the law in Texas was changed? And uh, I think Texas was one of the first states that put that in. We cannot affirm abortion as an acceptable means of birth control. We are unconditionally reject it as a means of gender selection. We oppose the use of late-term abortion known as dilation and extraction or the partial, partial birth abortion and call for an end to this practice. But except when the physical life of the mother is in danger, referring back up, and no other medical procedure is available or in the case of severe fetal anomalies, incompatible life. Imagine yourself setting a general conference on a committee that's dealing with this stuff. You know, just incredibly difficult issues. Before providing their services, abortion providers should be required to offer women the option of anesthesia. We call all Christians to a searching and prayerful inquiry into the sorts of conditions that may cause them to consider abortions. In a perfect world, you would never get here if you could get work backwards and solve the issue up front. The church shall offer ministries to reduce unintended pregnancies. We commit our church to, to continue to provide nurturing ministries to those who terminate a pregnancy. Uh, we do not stigmatize. We, we give them the support they need to those in the midst of a crisis pregnancy and to those who give birth. We particularly encourage the church, the government, and the social service agencies to support and facilitate the option of adoption. We affirm and encourage the church to assist the ministry, uh, crisis pregnancy centers and pregnancy resource centers, compassionately help women find feasible alternatives to abortion. So all around this statement, you see, we're trying to figure out how can we even minimize the, the need for abortion, if we can just do that. But that door is, in fact, kept open. Governmental laws and regulations do not provide all the guidance required by the informed Christian conscience. Therefore, a decision concerning abortion should be made only after thoughtful, prayerful consideration by parties involved with medical, family, pastoral, and other appropriate counsel. It's uh, not to be entered into lightly. There's even a statement about ministering to those who've experienced an abortion. We urge local pastors to become informed about the symptoms and behaviors associated with post-abortion stress. We further encourage local churches to make available contact information for counseling agencies that offer programs to address post-abortion stress for all seeking help. So a whole cluster of issues around that. And then, of course, the issue that our society is really dealing with at the moment. And all the wording here is important. Here's the first statement. We affirm that all persons are individuals of sacred worth. No exceptions. It's not a matter that we can categorize people into two groups, you know, the good, the bad. Uh, all people have sacred worth. They are all created in the image of God. By the way, 
this language here, there have been many attempts to remove from the book of discipline. Okay? And it's been fought down each time. There are people who do not like this language, would prefer to remove it. All persons need the ministry of the church and their struggles for human fulfillment, as well as the spiritual and emotional care of the fellowship that enables reconciling relationships with God, with others, and with each other. And here comes the, the line that's the most famous. The United Methodist Church does not condone the practice of homosexuality. Consider this practice incompatible with Christian teaching. If you follow General Conference two weeks ago, this is the statement that they wanted to remove. Do you remember the statement they wanted to put in its place? We agree to disagree. The proposal was, because this is such a contentious topic, and we've been debating it for decades, and we obviously cannot arrive at a consensus, the proposal that was given was that we strike this language and this put there on paper uh, the quotation from Wesley. Let's just agree that we will not come to an agreement on this. Uh, the, the measure after heated debate for two hours and a protest that shut down General Conference failed by basically a two-to-one vote, which, interesting enough, is about the vote that's been there for the last five or six General Conferences. So consistently, about a third of the General Conference delegates do not like this and would change it. Uh, the majority seems to hold that this is where we stand. We affirm that God's grace is available to all. We will seek to live together in Christian community. Uh, this coming right on the end of that statement. Welcoming, forgiving, loving one another. Remember back in the preface that we are invited into a dialogue that's respectful of each other, even when we disagree, as Christ has loved and accepted us. We implore families and churches, this is important, not to reject or condemn lesbian and gay members and friends because it's very easy to do we commit ourselves to be in ministry for and with all persons so this this statement that gets all the press is sandwiched on both sides with a lot of language um, equal rights regardless of sexual orientation this is probably more of a legal issue certain basic human rights and civil liberties are due all persons we are committed to supporting those rights and liberties for all persons, regardless of sexual orientation. Uh, so no matter what your personal view may be on this, we're on record that, we this, that everybody has the same rights. Everybody should have the same rights. There's no, no arguing that. We see a clear issue of simple justice in protecting the rightful claims where people have shared material resources, pensions, guardian relationships, mutual powers of attorney. Other such lawful claims uh, typically attendant on contractual relationships that involve shared contribution. That's, that's almost sounds like it's written by a lawyer. That's kind of legal speak. But that's where we are. I mean, that, th those issues are out there in society. Moreover, we support efforts to stop violence and other forms of coercion against all persons, regardless of sexual orientation, and we're all too familiar with some of the stuff that goes on in our society and culture that people suffer from. Now, back off on the social defense for a second. There's some other legislation and discipline, just you know, to be honest, it's there. One, the discipline prohibits the ordination of practicing self-avowed homosexuals. Now, what doors does that open? Okay. It opens that if you're celibate, you can be gay and be a Methodist pastor. Okay? 
And there are some. And they can go before the board of ministry and say, I choose celibacy. It also opens, don't ask, don't tell. Okay? And we all know that that's out there. Uh, another stipulation, oh, by the way, what would happen if a Methodist pastor, after they're ordained, were suddenly to come out and say, I'm gay? They would be removed from the Methodist ministry under existing law. Although we have bishops on record against that, uh, many clergy against that, many Methodists against that, but that's where the law stands at the moment. The discipline forbids clergy from blessing or presiding over same-sex unions. I know Barbara and I have gone over to the Cathedral of Hope and attended some, some same-sex unions there, but by church law, we cannot hold those inside the walls of Highland Park United Methodist Church or any church, uh, formal church. Simply, we're prohibited from doing that. Forbids the use of UMC facilities for same-sex union ceremonies and prohibits the use of uh, church funds for gay caucuses, other groups to promote the acceptance of homosexuality. This is other legislation that's kind of been kind of worked in there. You can have those out. Now, some observations. And then I'm going to do something a little risky. I'm going to just open this up, okay? We might want to <laughs> kick this around. I may never do it again, but that's all right. Um, observations. Historical. The church has always and consistently been conservative. It's just the nature of religion. It's the nature of the beast. Um, there always are within the church the prophetic forces who will go out on a limb. There are, there, are Methodist, there are Christians and Methodists who marched with Martin Luther King. But there were more people who shook their heads and just couldn't understand that at all. Okay? It's just the nature of the beast. Um, that's part of our Jewish heritage. It goes back to the very, very beginning. On the other hand, and just to be honest about this, positions on social issues can be culturally conditioned. We always have to understand in the back of our heads that this position may or may not be gospel. It may be cultural. There was a day when the church said no woman can take a leadership role in the church. Not only as a pastor, we know in Highland Park Methodist Church, you just take pictures in the 1950s of the administrative board of our church. 250 men, okay? Uh, so that, that's out there. That's a part of it. These things can and do change, as it has with women, as it has with the issue of slavery, as it has with many things. Currently, we're in the midst of this huge debate, nationally, politically, culturally, and religiously. And if, if my perception, you may have a different one, is, is that there's trends in both directions. On the one hand, you have uh, leaders like Obama who will go on record. Uh, we have polls that say increasingly the number of uh, people in the United States who openly accept homosexuality and basically affirm that, that, that there should not even be an issue, it should all be the same, that number is steadily increasing, increasing, increasing. Did you see the news? Friday, 60-40. 60% of the people in the United States basically would advocate that this should not even be an issue. Uh, trends in the other directions. Two-thirds of the states have passed in the last two years laws outlawing homosexuality and defining marriage as between a man and a woman. So the trends are going both ways. It's, it's, it's that cultural. We're not immune to that. Um, the same people who make up the citizenship of the United States also make up the membership of our church. Uh, so it's just, that's just the reality of it. 
some degree. We're always going to reflect the culture. Now, uh, this is just based on some recent conversations. Realistically, uh, no matter what your viewpoint is, it is unlikely and increasingly unlikely that the current positions taken by the Methodist Church are going to change, okay, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, the last several general conferences, what have we seen? We've seen a tightening of the language, okay, over the last probably five, six general conferences. Not a radical shift, but a tightening of the language, more and more conservative. But here's the big one. The Methodist Church is not a United States church. It is a global church. And the Methodist Church in the United States is what? Shrinking. The Methodist Church globally is growing. One-third of the delegates at this general conference were from outside the United States. And just know this. Outside Europe and the United States, the rest of the planet is substantially more conservative. Okay? So the more the church reflects a global community, the more the church is going to swing toward being conservative. That says that the chances of this being, I think that's probably one of the reasons that there was such a huge fight at this last general conference, because I think some people realize it's now or never, at least in the foreseeable future. Um, and that, that trend, as far as we can tell, is going to uh, continue. Now, that, I think, should drive us back full circle to the intent of the social principles to start with. Remind ourselves, it's not law, okay? Um, it's not something that you have to agree with. It is, however, an invitation to dialogue, to reflection, to growth, seeking God's will. And for me, seeking God's will, I have to admit that maybe I might be wrong. And I have to listen to alternative voices and be open to that possibility. Uh, and these issues are extreme, and there are, as far as I can tell, there is no issue more controversial than the issue in our society at this point. Uh, and there is not a consensus on it. These positions, it's gonna have to be yours, they are, however, the positions the church has taken. It is where we stand, even as it is an invitation for us to chat. Now, next week, we're just going to take some other issues, uh, and some of these, maybe not quite as controversial, but some of them might even hit closer to home for some of us. So, we have a little bit of time. Uh, we do this occasionally. I'm just, thoughts? Yes? No. I can go to the Cathedral of Hope and... As a, as a worship, you know, just basically be there. But no, if, if I were to participate in a same-sex union or marriage, uh, charges would be filed against me, I'd be brought to trial, and I would lose my credentials as a Methodist minister. And I would be, uh, the term is, stripped of your credentials. That's the law. That's a good question. I don't know. I, I know that we had, uh, over at Lover's Lane Methodist Church, some of you all remember there was the incident on Christmas Eve that there was a big brouhaha over there. Um, nothing that I know of would prohibit 
the baptism of a child of a gay couple. Matter of fact, I know it's been done in this church on multiple occasions. Okay. I, don't, you know, I, I can't, can't even conceive of how that would be an issue. Yeah. Well, that's another stat that's out there. The, the, uh, marriage is becoming an option. And it's becoming an option for a variety of reasons for a decreasing number of people. The number of children that are born outside of marriage of any type, you know, is huge. Okay. Matter of fact, we are moving towards half the children in America being born uh, where there is no couple of any structure whatsoever. And that, you know, that's, that's another societal issue we struggle with. Yeah. In the past, uh, having multiple wives was culturally acceptable. Is monogamy cultural or scriptural? Mm-hmm. <laughs> cultural. I couldn't think of anything scriptural. Yeah. Um, Within the Old Testament, clearly, polygamy, multiple wives, was the standard. Um, even in New Testament times, and I can't think of a single statement against it, but I, you know, and it's interesting because for most of us, that's not even controversial, but that's a substantial shift from the ancient world. That's an evolution of a belief. And yeah. Saint Romney stated yesterday saying it's been one man, one woman, mm -hmm. which would be a shift from his churches. Mm -hmm. Not a shift from Mormonism, but uh, at least not in the last not hundred. Not current, no, but no. historical figure. Right. Yeah, there, there was a period of time there in the early church. They disavowed that. Um, but yeah, and, and there are still some people who do that, but they're, they've been disavowed by the mainline Mormon church. He was pretty gutsy to do, have that conversation in that community, by the way. Yeah. I think what you're going to see is that on all social issues, there will be a shift to a more conservative position. So one of the flashpoints in future general conferences is likely to be the position on abortion. I would see the position on abortion as one that would be targeted for change. And again, nothing in the social principles is under restrictive rule, which means everything in the social principles can be changed. It simply re represents the majority view of the last general conference. So <coughs> that could be taken off the books, as could anything else we saw, okay. which motivates people to work hard. If you disagree with the statements, you're motivated hard to work to change it. Uh, and there are many people within the Methodist Church who are working on, on a variety of issues. A reconciling congregation is, is a movement within the Methodist Church and others that the church um, 
basically is supportive of gay and lesbian and bisexual people um, and works hard to be in ministry to them. There would be five or six Methodist churches in Dallas. Uh, North Haven would be one of them. Um, Holy, what? Grace, Holy Covenant, Greenland Hills, over here in our community. Um, there, there's another group that are the, uh, what's the one that are open to, they're against people being exported back to Mexico or other countries. There's, a, there's another group like that. These are churches that welcome and work on behalf of those people as well. That really does surprise me. The first time I heard it, you know, they are a reconciling church. Yeah. Well, you know, you always, no matter what your view is, you want to have the positive language on your side. Yeah. So, but I mean, those those churches are very serious. They work very hard, and they they provide. And I, some of us remember a day and time in, in Dallas when uh, Cathedral of Hope was not here. Okay. And so, for for many people, they were trying to work inside the existing church structure, and they found that extremely difficult to do, for obvious reasons. And so, Cathedral of Hope. Um, and Cathedral of Hope, remind me, they joined the denomination of, United of U UCC, United Church of Christ. And they're on record, uh, very, very open, very, very supportive. Some Methodist churches are. In, in spite of the official statements, you know, they're working the other direction. Are there affirmation groups here at Helen Parker Methodist? Not that I know of. One of the reasons that homosexuals want to have a marriage is because of their rights in the United States. Why is that union or whatever they want, why does that have to be religious? Why, does, why is that just not political? If you are a religious person, if you are a Christian and you're gay, what would you want? To be recognized by God, by the church, Within, with the gay and lesbian community, uh, for example, my, my cousin Charlie, who is my closest family member for 40 years, uh, was gay. And we had that conversation a lot. He, was, uh, he longed for that special person. He would have loved to have that. He would have loved to have been married. That didn't happen. But the civil union would be, marriage is both civil and religious. Right. It's legal and religious. So to go to civil union, for many people would say that's not all the way there. But it's not in the Bible. Well, neither is the question we talked about over here. Yeah. And let's be honest. Uh, the issue of homosexuality as we understand it does not occur in the Bible. That's just a, that's just a fact. Okay. Biblical scholars are. The issues that are... What? Paul addresses... Yeah. Men with men, yeah. Uh, Greek Roman culture. Heterosexual men participated in same-sex relationships essentially with children. Okay, this was part of the culture of the day. And Paul was aghast at that. And as a Jew, Paul would see that as part of the, the sign of sin. Uh, now, would Paul have supported homosexuality as we understand it? I don't think so. But he never dealt with it. 
for example, the Sodom and Gomorrah story is not about homosexuality. Okay, uh, that has to do with some other issues. Yeah, nobody seems to be appalled by the fact that Lot offered his daughters to a crowd to be gang raped. You know, and the the, the issues there. So. Sometimes it, people jump to scriptures, but if we understand scripture in its full context, most biblical scholars would say, the, as we understand it, two people, same gender, committed relationship, never arises in the Bible. Now, realistically, had it arisen, Paul would have been against it, but he never actually addresses that because that's not what he's dealing with kind of thing. So it's, 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 it's dicey to jump from a biblical scripture we have to look at the we have to look at the larger pattern. Ask what's really going on. How do you explain the odd places in Scripture where there's a Presbyterians or Baptists or Presbyterians? I mean, there's because obviously, mm -hmm. even those of us who have been brought up in the Methodist church <coughs> probably don't know everything that's in our social structure. Right. I think what you find in the Methodist social principles would be mainstream Christianity, which is what kind of Methodism has always defined itself. You've got some churches, the Episcopal Church is one of them, who've clearly moved to more liberal position, being much more open, at least the national church. And some of you may know that has led to a split of the church, the Anglican breakaway group. So a 3.5 million member church is now a 1.2 million member church because almost two million people have left on an issue. We remember the issue of Highland Park Press that broke away and formed TCPC. And this wasn't even an issue in the congregation. This was an issue of uh, the national church they thought was going to take a stand. It was actually a, com a preliminary committee report that never even got out, of, got out. But just the fear of that led to a break. Uh, there are clearly churches that are far more conservative than us. There are some that are more liberal than us. My understanding would be we're somewhere in the middle, which is where we are on most issues. Yeah. yeah. What's that? Yeah, via media. Yeah. Because these are highly, highly volatile issues. Uh, if you are against it, you would see this as an eroding of foundational Christian principles. Uh, if you're on the other side, you would see this as a, a, a common sense kind of move. It's who we are anyway as Methodists. We don't agree. Let's just be honest about it. Um, and then you get in highly um, conflicted environments where you get real polarized and the rhetoric gets higher and higher and higher which is why I think we see some of the language in here that, you know, uh, respecting the other, seeing their sacred worth, they are a child of God, that's very, very important, even when we disagree. This is the flashpoint issue, but, you know, you put three of us together, we're going to have three positions on almost any issue you can think about. That's just, that's reality, uh, if you push it far enough. Yes? Uh, Perkins School of Theology is Methodist, mm -hmm. and so... Rumor has it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, it would be it w two answers, typical Methodist. Okay. Uh, Perkins School of Theology is one of the 11 
11? 13 United Methodist seminaries. Um, so this, these are these statements, these are the official views of the Methodist Church, which means that we all stand under them, whether we disagree with them or not. Uh, the Methodist, if you were studying them over there, you'd be studying this as the principle. Doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but that's what they are. Now, I will guarantee you that many professors over there would violently disagree with this, that, or the other, and this one in particular. Um, but they are the position at this time. And so they may be working at a reconciling congregation. They may be working uh, in, a, in some type of a movement to try to see if we can educate, if we can change, to go to general conference and stuff. Yeah. But yes, Methodist is. My standard of reference has always been what would Jesus have said about this? So I'd like to ask you to tell us what you think Jesus would have said about homosexuality. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really Well, I'll be honest. Zip, not a zero. And as a matter of fact, that's, that's a standard joke out there. I stand with Jesus on the issue of homosexuality, which is to say nothing. Yeah. That issue simply never came up and would likely not to come up in the culture he was a part of. If you were gay, I would imagine you'd be so far underground, you know, because what was the Old Testament law? Death penalty. Anyway, yeah, we don't solve any of these, but <laughs> we will continue next week, and uh, you're going to be surprised by a couple of these. Meanwhile, our closing hymn is? Help us accept <laughs> Lord! <laughs> Whether you know it or not, it's a good hymn. <laughs> I encourage you to read all of the verses of this beautiful hymn, but we'll be singing the first and the last verse.